Chapter number 49 of Principle of Geology. This is a LibriVox recording. All the LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Emanuela. Principle of Geology by Charles Leal. Embedding of aquatic species in subaqueous strata Inhumation of freshwater plants and animals Shell marl Fossilized seed vessel and stems of chara Recent deposits in American lakes Freshwater species drifted into seas and estuaries Newell levels Alternation of marine and freshwater strata How caused? Embedding of marine plants and animals. Cetacea stranded on our shores. Littoral and estuary testacea swept into the deep sea. Burrowing shells. Living testacea found at considerable depths. Blending of organic remains of different ages. Having treated of the embedding of terrestrial plants and animals, and of human remains, in deposits now forming beneath the waters, I come next to consider in what manner aquatic species may be enthumed in strata formed in their own element. Freshwater Plants and Animals The remains of species belonging to those genera of the animal and vegetable kingdoms which are more or less exclusively confined to fresh water, are for the most part preserved in the beds of lakes or estuaries, but they are oftentimes swept down by rivers into the sea, and there intermingled with the exuviae of marine races. The phenomena attending their inhumation in lacustrine deposits are sometimes revealed to our observation by the drainage of small lakes, such as are those in Scotland, which have been laid dry for the sake of obtaining shell mar for agricultural uses. In this recent formation, as seen in Forfarshire, two or three beds of calcareous mar are sometimes observed separated from each other by layers of drift peat, sand or fissile clay. The mar often consists almost entirely of an aggregate of shells of the genera Limnea, Ranorbis, Valvata, and chiclas, of species now existing in Scotland. A considerable proportion of the testacea appear to have died very young, and few of the shells are of a size which indicates their having attained a state of maturity. The shells are sometimes entirely decomposed, forming a pulverant marl, sometimes in a state of good preservation. They are frequently intermixed with the stems of chare and other aquatic vegetables, the whole being matted together and compressed, forming lamine often as thin as paper, fossilized seed vessels and stems of chara. As the chara is an aquatic plant which occurs frequently fossil informations of different eras, and is often of much importance to the geologist in characterizing entire groups of strata, I shall describe the manner in which I have found the recent species in a petrified state. They occur in a marl lake in Forfarshire, enclosed in nodules 
and sometimes in a continuous stratum of a kind of travertine the seed vessel of these plants is remarkably thought an art and consists of a membranous knot covered by an integument both of which are spirally striated or ribbed the integument is composed of five spiral valves of a quadrangular form in chara ispida which abounds in the lakes of forfarshire and which has become fossil in the Bakey Lock. Each of the spiral valves of the seed vessel turns rather more than twice round the circumference, the whole together making between ten and eleven rings. The number of these rings differs greatly in different species, but in the same appears to be very constant. The stems of chare occur fossil in the Scotch marl in great abundance. In some species, as in Chara ispida, the plant, when living, contains so much carbonate of lime in its vegetable organization, independently of calcareose incrustation, that it effervesces strongly with acids when dry. The stems of Chara ispida are longitudinally striated, with a tendency to be spiral. These striae, as appears to be the case with all chare, turn always like the worm of a screw from right to left, while those of the seed vessel wind round in a contrary direction. A cross-section of the stem exhibits a curious structure, for it is composed of a large tube surrounded by smaller tubes, as is seen in some extinct as well as recent species. In the stems of several species, however, there is only a single tube. The valves of a small animal called Cypris, Cypris ornata, occur completely fossilized, like the stems of Chare, in the Scotch travertine above mentioned. The same Cypris inhabits the lakes and ponds of England, where, together with many other species, it is not uncommon. Although extremely minute, they are visible to the naked eye, and may be observed in great numbers swimming swiftly through the waters of our stagnant pools and ditches. The antennae, at the end of which are fine pencils of air, are the principal organs for swimming, and are moved with great rapidity. The animal resides within two small valves, not unlike those of a bivalve shell, and molds its integuments annually, which the conchiferous mollusks do not. The cast-off shells, resembling thin scales and occurring in countless myriads in many ancient freshwater mass, impart to them a divisional structure, like that so frequently derived from plates of mica. The recent strata of lacustrine origin above alluded to are of very small extent, but analogous deposits on the grandest scale are forming in the great Canadian lakes, as in Lake Superior and Huron, where beds of sand and clay are seen enclosing shells of existing species. The chara also plays the same part in the subaqueous vegetation of North America as in Europe. I observed along the borders of several freshwater lakes in the state of New York a luxuriant crop of this plant in clear water of moderate depth, rendering the bottom as verdant as a grassy meadow. Here, therefore, we may expect some of the toad seed vessels to be preserved in mud, 
just as we detect them fossil in the Eocene strata of Hampshire, or in the neighbourhood of Paris and many other countries. Embedding of freshwater species in estuary and marine deposits. In US levels, we have sometimes an opportunity of examining the deposits which, within the historical period, have silted up some of our estuaries, and excavations made for wells and other purposes, where the sea has been finally excluded, enable us to observe the state of the organic remains in these tracts. The valley of the Ouse between New Haven and New Is is one of several estuaries from which the sea has retired within the last seven or eight centuries, and here, as appears from the researches of Dr. Mantill, strata thirty feet and upwards in thickness have accumulated. At the top, beneath the vegetable soil, is a bed of peat about five feet thick, enclosing many trunks of trees. Next below is a stratum of blue clay containing freshwater shells of about nine species such as now inhabits the district. Intermixed with this was observed the skeleton of a deer. Lower down, the layers of blue clay contain, with the above-mentioned freshwater shells, several marine species well known to our coast. In the lowest beds, often at the depth of 36 feet, these marine testacea occur without the slightest intermixture of fluviatial species and amongst them the skull of the narwhal, or sea unicorn, Monodon monoceros, has been detected. Underneath all these deposits is a bed of pipe clay, derived from the subjacent chalk. If we had no historical information respecting the former existence of an inlet of the sea in this valley, and of its gradual obliteration, the inspection of the section above described would show, as clearly as a written chronicle, the following sequence of events. First, there was a saltwater estuary peopled for many years by species of marine testacea identical with those now living, and into which some of the larger cetacea occasionally entered. Secondly, the inlet grew shallower, and the water became brackish, or, alternatively, salt and fresh, so that the remains of fresh water and marine shells were mingled in the blue argillaceous sediment of its bottom. Thirdly, the shoaling continued until the river water prevailed, so that it was no longer habitable by marine testacea, but fitted only for the abode of fluviatile species and aquatic insects. Fourthly, a peaty swamp or morass was formed, where some trees grew, or perhaps were drifted during floods, and where terrestrial quadrupeds were marred. Finally, the soil being flooded by the river only at distant intervals became a verdant meadow. In Delta of Ganges and Indus, it was before stated that on the sea coast in the Delta of the Ganges there are eight great openings each of which has evidently, at some ancient period, 
served in its turn as the principal channel of discharge. As the base of the delta is 200 miles in length, it must happen that, as often as the great volume of river water is thrown into the sea by a new mouth, the sea will at one point be converted from salt to fresh, and at another from fresh to salt, for, with the exception of those parts where the principal discharge takes place, the salt water not only washes the base of the delta, but enters far into every creek and lagoon. It is evident, then, that repeated alternations of beds containing freshwater shells with others filled with marine exuviae may here be formed. It has also been shown by Arthesian borings at Calcutta that the delta once extended much farther than now into the gulf, and that the river is only recovering from the sea the ground which has been lost by subsidence at some former period. Analogous phenomena must sometimes be occasioned by such alternate elevation and depression as has occurred in modern times in the delta of the Indus. But the subterranean movements affect but a small number of the deltas formed at one period on the globe. Whereas the silting up of some of the arms of great rivers and the opening of others, and the consequent variation of the points where the chief volume of their waters is discharged into the sea, are phenomena common to almost every delta. The variety of species of testacea contained in the recent calcareous marl of Scotland, before mentioned, is very small, but the abundance of individuals extremely great, a circumstance very characteristic of freshwater formations in general, as compared to marine. For in the latter, as is seen on sea beaches, coral reefs, or in the bottom of the seas examined by dredging, wherever the individual shells are exceedingly numerous, there rarely fails to be a vast variety of species. Embedding of the remains of marine plants and animals marine plants. The large banks of drift seaweed, which occur on each side of the equator in the Atlantic, Pacific and Indian Oceans, were before alluded to. These, when they subside, may often produce considerable beds of vegetable matter. In Holland, submarine peat is derived from Fuji, and on parts of our own coast from Zostera Marina. In places where algae do not generate peat, they may nevertheless leave traces of their form imprinted on argillaceous and calcareous mud, as they are usually very thought in their texture. Seaweeds are often cast up in such abundance on our shores during heavy gales that we cannot doubt that occasionally vast numbers of them are embedded in littoral deposits now in progress. We learn from the researches of Dr. Forkhammer that besides supplying in common with land plants the material of coal, the algae must give rise to important chemical changes in the composition of strata in which they are embedded. These plants always contain sulfuric acid, and sometimes, in as large a quantity as 8.5%, combined with potash. Magnesia also and phosphoric acid are constant ingredients. 
Whenever large masses of seaweeds putrefy in contact with the ferruginous clay, sulfuretted of iron, or iron pyrites, is formed by the union of the sulfur of the plants with the iron of the clay, while the potash, released from its union with the clay, idestes silicate of alumina, forms with it a peculiar compound. Many of the mineral characteristics of ancient rocks, especially the alum slates and the pyrites which occur in clay slate, and the fragments of anthracite in marine silurian strata, may be explained by the decomposition of fucoids or seaweeds. Embedding of cetacea It is not uncommon for the larger cetacea, which can float only in a considerable depth of water, to be carried during storms or high tides into estuaries or upon low shores, where, upon the retiring of high water, they are stranded. Thus, an arval, Monodon monoceros, was found on the beach near Boston in Lincolnshire in the year 1800, the whole of its body buried in the mud. A fisherman, going to his boat, saw the horn and tried to pull it out when the animal began to steer itself. An individual of the common whale, Balena mysticetus, which measured 70 feet, came ashore near Peterhead in 1682. Many individuals of the genus Balenoptera have met the same fate. It will be sufficient to refer to those cast on shore near Burnt Island and Ataloa, recorded by Sibbald and the Nail. The other individual mentioned by Sibbald as having come ashore at Boyne in Bedfordshire was probably a razorback. Of the genus Catodon, Cachalot, Ray mentions a large one stranded on the west coast of Holland in 1598, and the fact is also commemorated in the Dutch engraving of the time of much merit. Sibald too records that at a herd of cachalots, upwards of 100 in number, were found stranded at Kerston in Orkney. The dead bodies of the larger cetacea are sometimes found floating on the surface of the waters, as was the case with the immense whale exhibited in London in 1831, and the carcass of a sea or lamantine, Halicora, was, in 1785, cast ashore near Leith. To some accident of this kind, we may refer the position of the skeleton of a whale, 73 feet long, which was found at Erthree, on the 4th, near Stirling, embedded in clay 20 feet higher than the surface of the highest tide of the river Forth at the present day. From the situation of the Roman station, and causeways at a small distance from the spot, it is concluded that the whale must have been stranded there at a period prior to the Christian era. Other fossil remains of this class have also been found in estuaries known to have been silted up in recent times, one example of which has been already mentioned as Lewis in success. Marine Reptiles some singular fossils have lately been discovered in the island of Ascension, in a stone said to be continually forming on the beach, where the waves threw up small rounded fragments of shells and corals which, 
in the course of time, become firmly agglutinated together, and constitute a stone used largely for building and making lime. In a quarry on the northwest side of the island, about one hundred yards from the sea, some fossil eggs of turtles have been discovered in the hard rock thus formed. The eggs must have been nearly hatched at the time when they perished, for the bones of the young turtle are seen in the interior, with their shape fully developed, the interstices between the bones being entirely filled with grains of sand, which are cemented together, so that when the egg shells are removed, perfect casts of their form remain in stone. In the single specimen here figured, which is only five inches in its longest diameter, no less than seven eggs are preserved. To explain the state in which they occur fossil, it seems necessary to suppose that after the eggs were almost hatched in the warm sand, a great wave threw upon them so much more sand as to prevent the rays of the sun from penetrating, so that the yolk was chilled and deprived of vitality. The shells were, perhaps, slightly broken at the same time, so that small grains of sand might gradually be introduced into the interior by water as it percolated through the beach. Marine testacea The aquatic animals and plants which inhabited the estuary are liable, like the trees and land animals which people the alluvial plains of a great river, to be swept from time to time far into the deep. For, as a river is perpetually shifting its course and undermining a portion of its banks with the forests which cover them, so the marine current alters its direction from time to time and bears away the banks of sand and mud against which it turns its force. These banks may consist in great measure of shells peculiar to shallow and sometimes brackish water, which may have been accumulating for centuries until at length they are carried away and spread out along the bottom of the sea, at a depth at which they could not have lived and multiplied. Thus, littoral and estuary shells are more frequently liable, even than freshwater species, to be intermixed with the exuvia of pelagic tribes. After the storm of February the 4th, 1831, when several vessels were wrecked in the estuary of the 4th, the current was directed against a bed of oysters with such force that great heaps of them were thrown alive upon the beach and remained above high water mark. I collected many of these oysters, as also the common eatable whelks, Buccina, thrown up with them, and observed that, although still living, their shells were worn by the long attrition of sand which had passed over them as they lay in their native bed, and which had evidently not resulted from the mere action of the tempest by which they were cast ashore. From these facts we learn that the union of the two parts of a bivalve shell does not prove that it has not been transported to a distance, and when we find shells worn, and with all their prominent parts rubbed off, they may still have been embedded where they grew. Burrowing Shells it sometimes appears extraordinary, when we observe the violence of the breakers on our coast and see the strength of the current in removing cliffs and sweeping out new channels, that many tender and fragile shells 
should inhabit the sea in the immediate vicinity of this turmoil. But a great number of the bivalvate stature, and many also of the turbinated univalves, burrow in sand or mud. The solen and the cardium, for example, which are usually found in shallow water near the shore, pierce through a soft bottom without injury to their shells, and the folas can drill a cavity through mud of considerable hardness. The species of these and many other tribes can sink, when alarmed, with considerable rapidity, often to the depth of several feet, and can also penetrate upwards again to the surface, if a mass of matter be heaped upon them. The hurricane, therefore, may expand its fury in vain, and may sweep away even the upper part of banks of sand or mud, or may roll pebbles over them, and yet this stature may remain below secure and uninjured. Shells become fossil at a considerable depth. I have already stated that, at the depth of 950 fathoms, between Gibraltar and Ceuta, Captain Smith found a gravelly bottom, with fragments of broken shells, carried tighter probably from the comparatively shallow parts of the neighboring straits, through which a powerful current flows. Beds of shelly sand might here, in the course of ages, be accumulated several thousand feet thick. But, without the aid of the drifting power of a current, shells may accumulate in the spot where they live and die. At great depths from the surface, if sediment be thrown down upon them, for even in our own colder latitudes, the depths at which living marine animals abound is very considerable. Captain Vidal ascertained, by soundings made off Torrey Island, on the northwest coast of Ireland, that crustacea, starfish, and testacea occurred at various depths between fifty and one hundred fathoms, and it drew up the entalia from the mud of Galway Bay in two hundred and thirty and two hundred and forty fathoms water. The same hydrographer discovered on the Rockhall Bank large quantities of shells at depths varying from forty-five to one hundred and ninety fathoms. The shells were for the most part pulverized and evidently recent as they retained their colors. In the same region, a bed of fish bones was observed extending for two miles along the bottom of the sea in eighteen and ninety fathoms water. At the eastern extremity also of the rockhole bank, fish bones were met with mingled with pieces of fresh shell at a depth of two hundred and thirty five fathoms. Analogous formations are in progress in the submarine tracks extending from the Shetland Isles to the north of Ireland, wherever soundings can be procured. A continuous deposit of sand and mud, replete with broken and entire shells, echini, etc., has been traced for upwards of twenty miles to the eastward of the Faroe Islands, usually at a depth of from forty to one hundred fathoms. In one part of this tract, latitude 61 degrees 50, longitude 6 degrees 30, fish bones occur in extraordinary profusion, so that the lid cannot be drawn up without some vertebra being attached. This bone bed, as it was called by our surveyors, is three miles and a half in length and 45 fathoms under water, 
and contains a few shells intermingled with the bones. In the British seas, the shells and other organic remains lie in soft mud or loose sand and gravel, whereas in the bed of the Adriatic, Donati found them frequently enclosed in stone of recent origin. This is precisely the difference in character which we might have expected to exist between the British marine formations now in progress and those of the Adriatic, for calcareous and other mineral springs abound in the Mediterranean and land adjoining, while they are almost entirely wanting in our own country. I have already adverted to the eight regions of different depths in the Aegean Sea, each characterized by a peculiar assemblance of shells, which have been described by Professor Forbes, who explored them by dredging. During his survey of the west coast of Africa, Captain Sir Belker found, by frequent soundings, between the 23rd and 20th degrees of north latitude, that the bottom of the sea, at the depth of from 20 to about 50 fathoms, consists of sand with a great intermixture of shells, often entire, but sometimes finally comminuted. Between the 11th and 9th degrees of north latitude, on the same coast, at soundings varying from 20 to about 80 fathoms, he brought up abundance of corals and shells mixed with sand. These also were in some parts entire, and in others worn and broken. In all these cases, it is only necessary that there should be some disposition of sedimentary matter, however minute, such as may be supplied by rivers draining a continent, or currents preying on a line of cliffs, in order that stratified formations, hundreds of feet in thickness, and repeat with organic remains, should result in the course of ages. But although some deposits may thus extend continuously for a thousand miles or more near certain coasts, the greater part of the bed of the ocean, remote from continents and islands, may very probably receive at the same time no new accessions of drift matter, or sediment being intercepted by intervening hollows, and which a marine current must clear its waters as throughoutly as a turbid river in a lake. Erroneous theories in geology may be formed not only from overlooking the great extent of simultaneous deposits now in progress, but also from the assumption that such formations may be universal or coextensive with the bed of the ocean. We frequently observe on the sea beach very perfect specimens of fossil shells, quite detached from the matrix, which have been washed out of older formations, constituting the sea cliffs. They may be all of extinct species, like the Oceania freshwater, and marine shells strewed over the shores of Hampshire, yet, when they become mingled with the shells of the present period, and buried in the same deposits of mud and sand, they would appear, if appraised and examined by future geologists, to have been all of the same age, that such intermixture and blending of organic remains of different ages have actually taken place in former times, is unquestionable, though the occurrence appears to be very local and exceptional. 
it is however a class of accidents more likely than almost any other to lead to serious anachronism in geological chronology End of chapter 49 Recording by Emanuela